Morning, Grace Church. Be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are a grateful people this morning. We look to our left and our right, and we see a brother and sister in Christ. And Lord, you remind us that we don't walk alone. We walk with you, but we also walk with others on this path to become more like Christ. Lord, forgive us for those times when we get wise in our own understanding. Take back our own will. Try to devise value and worth in anything but you. How soon we forget as the interests of this world pull at us, how soon we forget that we need you. We're grateful, Lord, that you sought us out while we were still sinners. You sent your son Jesus when we didn't even give a thought of you to hang on a cross in our place where that should have been us. But we're thankful, Lord, for a forgiveness that was accomplished by you. We're grateful, Lord, today for your Holy Spirit that lives in each one of us, leading, guiding, and directing. We're grateful for your scripture that is truth that we can build our, li our life on. And again, we're grateful for the body of Christ, even this small portion of the body of Christ. It also reminds us, Lord, that you have interests outside of us. Forgive us for those times when we're consumed with ourselves. Help, help us to look outside of our windows and see a, a hurting world that you care about. You have this whole world in your hands. And you, you want every person to come to know you. We're grateful, Lord, for what missionary Sam Taylor is doing in Chicago with sports ministry. We pray that you would work through him using soccer as a doorway into the heart, meeting presenting needs, and then getting to the deepest need, the need for salvation. We're grateful too, Lord, that you continue to grow us up. We're thankful for what you did these past several weeks in VBS and Kids Praise, and then also what you've done at Peckway this past week in VBS. How you use little people to even teach us we're thankful for childlike faith and pray for those little people, Lord, that you would continue to grow them up in you. Forgive us, Lord, for being childish and make us more like them, childlike. We pray today, too, Father, that you would speak through Pastor Mike as he brings the word. May you touch each of us at our point of need, drawing us closer to yourself and then to each other. So, Lord, be glorified because of our time together more of you, less of us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So scripture reading, uh, join with me. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thank you very much, Pastor Steve. I have consistently forgotten all weekend to make this announcement at the announcement time, and so I forgot again today, and I'll make it now. Praise the Lord for this past week of music camp, Outpour Music, Outpour Kids Music here. And uh, just to share with you that four children trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord as a result of this week of music camp. And then... Another elementary girl went home and her parents had the opportunity to lead her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We praise the Lord for that, amen? Praise the Lord for new life in Jesus Christ. I want to begin this morning as we dive into the next portion of Ephesians with a question. And the question is, what do you look for in a church? When you're looking for a church, and maybe this morning you're here and you're looking for a church, what is it that you look for in a church to ensure that it's the right church for you and for your family? Now, the researchers, the pollsters in America, Lifeway Research, uh, Pew, uh, Barna, they have uh, identified like eight to ten factors that people are looking for, and among the top factors that people are looking for in a church are preaching, worship style, kids programming, and a welcoming atmosphere. And all of those things are valid things, and, and absolutely they're important, especially as you're looking for a church where your family can grow deeply in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to rephrase that question this morning, however, and I want us to grapple with it in a different way, and that is, what does God look for in a church? What does God look for in a church? Not to discount preaching or worship style, kids programming, welcoming atmosphere. All of those things are important to God, and in fact, if you read the Word of God at different places in the Scripture, He addresses each one of those things. But I want to suggest to you that God goes deeper than that, that He looks beyond the surface, and that he's actually looking deeply into the foundation of the church. And that what God is looking for when he looks at a church is to inspect the foundation and make sure that it is a solid and safe church in which his children can grow deeply in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. 
God wants every follower of his, every person who knows and follows Jesus, to be in a church that is solid and safe, where they can grow in their relationship with him to become more and more like Jesus. So, what are the key factors that God is looking for in a church? Welcome to Ephesians chapter 4. As we open Ephesians 4, we will find that the first 16 verses address church life and what it is that God prioritizes or looks for in a church. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 will be as practical in our study from now till September as Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 was theological. And in fact, as we break open these last three chapters, we're going to find that Paul is instructing us on how to practice our faith in daily life how to practice our faith in our homes and with our families while we're at work and with our neighbors, when people are watching us, but also when we are by ourselves and nobody is watching us except the Lord himself. And today, in these 16 verses, how to behave, how to live practically to honor Jesus in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul begins this way with verse one. He reminds us that as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, what follows in the next 15 verses is the authoritative teaching of God on how to live our lives in the church body, in a church family. For many of you, that will be Grace Community Church. For some of you, it is your home church. For others, you're looking for a church. Apply it as you find the church of God's choosing for you because what we're seeing here is what God expects to find in a church. And first of all, what God is looking for is he is looking for unity. God is looking for unity. Look at verse 3. The Word of God says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, understand this. Unity is how God designed the church to function. It is his plan, his design. He has given it to the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand from our study, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his blood was shed to make peace. Peace between us and God, peace between us and each other, because his desire is that we were to live at peace with the one who created us, saved us, sustains us every day, and live at peace with one another, both within the church body and also within the world around us. Unity is a derivative of peace. God wants unity for his church. There are not multiple options. God doesn't say, okay, you know, this is A, B, C, or D. You choose what you want your church to be. God says there is one option. It is unity. And you have to choose unity, which is why he says, make every effort to keep the unity in the bond of peace. Now, I love how in verses four through six, Paul expresses unity by using what most scholars think is an ancient Christian creed or an ancient Christian hymn that underscores the absolute importance of unity in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 4, and in fact, since this is an ancient Christian creed or hymn, we ought to say it together. Okay, here we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Do you notice the key word there? One. The church is designed for oneness, for unity. There is one body, one body of Christ, the church. 
There is one spirit. Who is he? The Holy Spirit of God. There are not multiple spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. All of us, all of us, every one of us, we have the Holy Spirit residing in us if we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He is not in, he is not billions of spirit. He is one spirit living in every one of us. There is one hope. What is that hope? Eternity with Christ in heaven. There is one Lord. His name is? There is one faith. It is the Christian faith. There is one baptism. When you come to know Christ, you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One baptism declaring that you're a follower of Jesus. There is one God and Father of all. He, we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Oneness is God's design and plan for the church. Unity is what God calls us to, and he wants us to keep that unity. Now, here's the question. How do we do that? How do we keep the unity of the church? How do we ensure that Grace Community Church and our GCC family enjoys unity and is not impacted by division and conflict? How can we ensure that this body will be filled with the joy of the Lord because we are living in unity with one another. And here's Paul's answer, and it's found in verse two, and his answer is simply this, it depends on your attitude. It depends on your attitude. It depends on my attitude. Our attitudes are critical to the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. And in verse two, he tells us that there are two attitudes that we need to cultivate in order to preserve unity in the body of Christ. And the first thing he says is this, be completely humble and gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. Now, in other words, in the church, we are called to put the interests of others ahead of our own and to consider others better than ourselves. Surefire way to erode the unity of a church. Surefire way to touch off conflict. Surefire way to create division is to behave as a spoiled child. I want what I want. I don't care what anyone else wants. It is about me. <clears throat> and therefore, you need to do what I want in order for me to be happy. Surefire way to erode the unity of a church is to create that kind of selfish, prideful attitude within the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are called to be humble people. Humble people live for the good of others and the glory of God. We don't have to have our own way. We're willing to sacrifice because we care deeply that others would have what they need to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. My mom taught me this many years ago, and I'm grateful for the lesson. This is what she said. She said, listen, if you're willing to put others first and put their interests, their needs first, then God is going to do amazing things for you, more than you could ask or imagine. And, and if you don't, you're just going to be a selfish, spoiled child. And I was an only child, and I was an only grandchild, and I was an only child and grandchild that grew up in the center of the universe in New Danville. So right there, you put all that together. And I had privilege. I mean, I had high privilege. And my mother knew that there was a great tendency in that kind of environment for me to become very self-centered and selfish. And so she made sure I understood it is others first and watch what God does when you put their interests ahead of your own. And he will do that. Be completely humble. Secondly, be gentle. Now here's the deal. 
this word gentle has really been called into question um, in, the, in the culture because when you talk about people being gentle, they think, you know, you be a doormat and everybody runs over you. Your gentleness is weakness. That is not biblical gentleness. Biblical gentleness is found in strong people who have learned how to control, control their strength for the benefit of others. John Stott, British pastor and scholar, has written that the gentle person is the master of himself and the servant of others. The master of himself and the servant of others. A gentle person is a person who's learned to control their strength. And so with the same hand, same fingers, they're able to pick up a contact lens and pop it into their eye and also pick up a baseball and pitch it at a high rate of speed to a batter. Same hand, same fingers, but they've learned how to control given the context in which they find themselves. A gentle person is a master of himself, a servant of others, always putting the interests of others ahead of their own. Hear, hear me when I say this. How do, we, how do we keep unity in the body of Christ in the church? Be completely humble and gentle. Here's the question that we should be asking. What is best for others in the church? What is best for others in the church? Second attitude. Second attitude is be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, the common misconception about the word patience is that it's all about waiting. And, and you know, I like to kind of have a little fun with that because I'm the father of four daughters, the husband of one wife, and I like to say that, you know, I spent my life waiting. And, and that's not really true because my wife would counter and say, I'm the wife of one pastor. And I have literally spent my life waiting. And that's very true. We go to the Conestoga Wagon for, for dinner and she goes right back to the booth and 20 minutes later I get there because I walk around, greet people on the booth tables, make sure I know everybody's there and then I go back. And she has cultivated tremendous waiting skills in her life. And I'm grateful for that. That's not patience. It's a part of it, but it's not patience, not as it's defined here. The key to patience here is in the second phrase, bearing with one another in love. Listen, here's what biblical patience is, and here's why it's so critical for the church. It is when you care about other people, even though other people might have quirks, idiosyncrasies, kind of oddities in their personality. Here's the deal. I have quirks. I have idiosyncrasies. I have oddities in my personality. I'm grateful nobody said amen, but I mean, I do. <laughs> I do. And you do too. You're just a bunch of quirky people. And I'm a quirky pastor. And, and here's the deal. The way in which unity is cultivated is that I can look at others with their quirks and idiosyncrasies and say, you know what, I love you. And I can bear with you because you bear with me. And that's just how the world works. You don't cancel one another. You care for one another and you love one another. And you do that in the body of Christ and guess what you get? You get unity. And that's why Paul says in verse three, make every effort to keep the unity. The actual Greek verb that's used there is an emphatic verb. And what it means is do it now and give it your all. So how important is unity? It is like number one, right? Number one. So what is it that God looks for in the church? 
great. Secondly, God expects ministry. Ministry. Say that with me. Ministry. Now hold on to that. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all alike in the church. And that is God's design. After calling us to unity in verses 1 through 6, notice what Paul next says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. In our unity as a church, there must be diversity. And that diversity is found in the unique gifts that each one of us have in the body of Christ. When we are saved, not only does God forgive us by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in our life, changes us from the inside out, and gives to every one of us at least one spiritual gift. Most of us have multiple spiritual gifts. He brings those gifts, he plants them into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we define spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a special ability that the Holy Spirit gives you for ministry in the church and also in the world around you. In our unity as a church, we have diversity because we are all gifted and not all the same way. Paul calls that in verse 7 a grace. And the reason he calls it a grace is because the gifts that we have are undeserved. I stand here this morning and I'm gifted as a pastor. That's one of the gifts that God has given me. Every day that I wake up, every day that I serve you as a pastor and serve in this world as a pastor, I recognize that this is an undeserved gift. And I'm overawed by the fact that he would give that to me. I don't deserve it. He's given it to me. I don't take it for granted. I, I serve him the very best that I can in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I am ever grateful for this gift. That is true for every one of you. Whatever your gift is, whatever your gifts are, you don't deserve them. They are a grace that God has apportioned to you to be used for the glory of God. Ken Mech, you have a gift of leadership that has been recognized in our community, it's been recognized in our church. You bless me. And I know you, and I know that you understand you don't deserve that gift, and you're just kind of amazed like I am that God would use you. And that's true for every one of us here. Pastor Will is our founding pastor, gifted pastor, gifted teacher, gifted as a leader. But Will was nodding his head, and he wasn't nodding off. He was agreeing with me, right? <laughs> I know you weren't nodding off. I just said that for fun. <laughs> you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Ellen Trimble has a gift of helps and service. And she will work behind the scenes to make sure that things get done to the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. She would tell you, the first one to tell you, I don't deserve that. But she loves what God gave to her. And she uses it for his glory. Now listen, look at the word of God. And look at how Paul describes this. Because in verse 8, what he does is he quotes Psalm 68 verse 18. To describe spiritual gifts, he takes us back to an event in Jesus' life called Jesus' ascension. And he reminds us that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, 40 days after his resurrection, he went back to heaven. When he ascended, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Now you read that and that could be a throwaway verse because you're like, what in the world does that mean? And you move on. Let me tell you what it means. 
It means that when he ascended to heaven, it was, it was Jesus saying, I am victorious. I have been the victor over sin and death and evil, and now I go to take my place at the right hand of the throne of God, and all of the enemies have been vanquished, and they are dethroned, and they are defeated, and guess what? After I get there, I'm gonna pour out gifts on you. And what happened 10 days after his ascension? The Holy Spirit came. The church was founded, and beginning on that day, called Pentecost, Acts chapter two, to this day, he pours out gifts to men and women. He gives you gifts. You have gifts. Now, there are probably over two dozen gifts that are specified in the Bible. You'll find them in lists in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, 16, Ephesians chapter 4. The gifts that are mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4 are specifically leadership gifts. And they are mentioned here as leadership gifts for a purpose. He mentions five gifts for one reason, because he has a point to make and that point relates to ministry. The five leadership gifts that he mentions are apostle. I'm gonna stop right there. We understand that in the first century there were apostles. There were 11 of them, there were 12. We lost one at the Last Supper, Judas. Out he goes. In Acts chapter one, a 12th is chosen. His name is Matthias. We understand that Paul is the 13th apostle. Apostles in the first century were those who had seen the resurrected Jesus, and they were speaking on his behalf. Apostles today in the church have a different connotation. The gift of apostle is given to those who are church planters, pioneer missionaries. They're at the forefront leading in pioneer new work for the kingdom of God. Prophets. Prophets are individuals who are gifted as teachers, and they have the ability to look at the signs of the times, the world around us, and have biblical insight, not social media insight, not conspiracy theory insight, not, yeah, thank God, that's right, Bob, not whatever they want insight, but biblical insight into how the word of God applies to the current conditions in the world. They are not foretelling the future, they are foretelling the word of God. Evangelists are persons who are gifted to lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pastors, the word here means shepherd, are those that God calls to really care for a flock or a congregation, and part of their work will be teaching. But teachers are not necessarily all pastors. They are individuals who are extraordinarily gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach the word of God, either in the church, in Christian schools, mission fields, Bible studies, conferences, they are gifted as teachers. Here's what God says. These five leadership gifts have one purpose, and that is to equip the church for works of ministry in the church and in the world. To explain that to you, as we are here this morning, this church is not organized with Mike Sigmund on the stage, all of you as the audience, Mike does his thing, he's the show, along with Alyssa and the team, and we walk out and do whatever we want. Not at all. The way this works is, 
I am gifted as a pastor and teacher to equip you and help you discover where you are gifted and then equip you to use those gifts in this world to make a difference in the lives of people around you. The work of the church is not done just because Mike or Paul finished preaching. The work of the church happens because after this, beginning this afternoon and right through next Saturday afternoon, we will be ministering, caring, working with the people called GCC to equip them for works of service so that together we can make a difference in this world. It's not about one, it's about all of us together. And so sometimes in my oversight work with churches years ago, people would say to me in some, some conflicted churches, they'd say, well, our pastor, you know, we pay him to do all the ministry and he expects us to do some. Yeah, that's the point. You pay him so he can preach and teach and equip you so that you can be side by side with him and serve in the world. Now, understand, I know that I do this full-time, and I know you have other full-time work to do, including full-time retirement. So therefore, um, <coughs> you think about that. Um, therefore, I understand that, that you don't have the same amount of time, but I also understand I can't do it without you. Paul can't do it without you. Addison can't do it. David can't do it without you. We are equipping and enabling so together we can do ministry. Got that? Ministry, say it with me, ministry by the people of God. When God looks at a church, he's looking for unity and he's looking to see that the people are engaged in ministry. And in a church in which the people alongside their pastors are engaged in ministry, this is what God says, that church will be built up, that means it will grow spiritually and numerically, that church will experience unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I talked to a pastor one time, older pastor, now with the Lord. He served in World War II. And this is what he said to me. He said, in the war I noticed that as long as we were on the front line, we were united together and we didn't fight with each other. But he said, man, when we got back in the camp and we spent any time back there, we started fighting with each other. And he said, here's the deal, in the church, as long as the church is in the front line, the church can be united. We don't have time for nonsense. We don't have time for selfishness. We don't have time to fight with each other. The last thing our world needs is a fighting church. The most important thing the world needs is a united church on the front lines doing ministry together, all focused on helping people know and follow Jesus. Lastly, Paul says the church will become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the church will meet Christ's standards and be the church that he wants her to be. That leads to the final point. Are you ready? When God is looking for a church, he's looking for unity. He's looking for ministry. And thirdly, he's looking for maturity. Maturity. When God looks at the church, he's looking inside, now right here, hear me, he's looking inside your mind and your heart to see if you are a fully developed Christian. Not a perfect Christian, 
but a growing Christian who is becoming more and more day by day like Jesus Christ. And sometimes we grasp the meaning of an idea when we are confronted with its opposite. So in verse 14, Paul presents the opposite of maturity. God does not want us to be, and I quote, immature like children, tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, or tricked with lies so clever they sound like truth. We are called to be mature believers who are no longer drinking milk, but we are eating solid food. You know what that solid food is? It is the word of God. Friends, the only path to maturity that I know is the path of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. If you want to be a mature Christian, you need to be reading the word of God, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. You need to take it in, you need to allow it to change you from the inside out, not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Because our maturity is directly linked to our understanding and commitment to the word of God. And God is looking for mature believers who have graduated from the milk, that's like an occasional verse or two, to the meat of God's word. Not only are you reading it, now hear me this, you are also digesting it and you are seeking to be obedient to his word. One of the things that concerns me is in this world in which we live, if someone publishes a book and they call it the lost books of the Bible, it skyrockets onto the New York Times bestseller list. Oh my goodness, the lost books of the Bible. And people who have not yet even read the Bible run out to buy that book because they want to read what's lost. Well, how do you know what's lost if you haven't read what's found? Right? I mean, seriously, I know that's my way of thinking, but I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's the right way of thinking. I, you need to know the Word of God, and don't be so enamored. Oh, there are 32 titles on the New York Times bestseller list about heaven. Yeah, this is how we learn about heaven. No, no. This is how you learn about heaven. Because much of that is just like, it's, 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 it's skim milk. And I mean, who likes skim milk? And I mean, really, honestly, it's water that they tint. I mean, it's, you know, come on. It, it's not what you, I know that that's, you know, sorry for anybody who produces skim milk out there. But anyway, you don't want that. You want to see what God says. Now, there's one other test of maturity. This is a big one. Mature Christians know how to speak the truth in love. Mature Christians not only know truth, they know how to speak the truth in love. Let me illustrate that for you. When Jen and I pastored in Baltimore, we started with this small group of people, and, and so because most were retired, the first Bible study we started, summer of 86, was a Wednesday Bible study at 11 a.m., and it was populated solely by women and mostly uh, widows in our congregation. And so it was great. I started teaching that Bible study. 
as our church grew, I continued to teach that Bible study. I didn't give it up because they had the best lunch of any of the small groups that we had. And the owner of the candy store in Rosedale, Maryland, joined that small group. I mean, what kind of nut would give up, you know, that Bible study? She brought candy every week. It was wonderful. So in that Bible study, there were very mature Christians, women who were deep in their faith. There were women who were brand new in the faith. There were women who were not yet Christians. And we're doing a study one time on prayer. And, uh, you know, I'm teaching the Lord's Prayer. And at the end, you know, any reflections, any thoughts? And this woman raised her hand. She said, I just love to pray. That's great. I pray to Agnes every day. I said, who do you pray to? She said, Agnes. I said, who's Agnes? She said, that's my guardian angel. I named her. I, you know, they don't have names, but I gave mine the name, Agnes. I said, okay, you pray to Agnes every day. Now, at this point, I could see out of the corner of my eye several of my very seasoned Christian women getting their helmet of salvation on, their shield of faith, and pulling the sword of the Spirit out. They were going for her knees. We're going to cut her off at the knees and make sure she knows you don't pray to Agnes. And I just looked over and said, mm, 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 mm. And then over here is a woman. God bless her. She's not so concerned about truth. She's concerned about love. Oh, I, you know, you know, everybody has to pray to somebody. And I understand what you're saying, and why don't we talk a little bit about it? And I just, mm, 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 mm. Because here's the problem. Sometimes as Christians, we are so hard-edged on truth that if somebody says something that is outside of the Scripture, we are ready to do battle. Watch out and watch out now. I got my sword, and I am going to make sure you understand truth. And then there's always somebody in the room who feels sorry, and they don't want anybody to be hurt or feel bad, so they err to the other side to the point where you lose all truth because you're loving them to the point where they don't even know what truth is. I'm a young pastor, so I take no credit for this. I'm sitting there thinking, first of all, where would you come up with the name Agnes for an angel? I mean, that was my first thought. But once I got past that, I said, you know, you know the Bible says a lot about angels. And maybe what we ought to do is, after lunch, maybe we could just talk a little bit here about angels and just see what the Bible has to say about angels. And that might help us understand whether we should pray to angels or not. And this dear woman said, oh, I never read anything in the Bible about it. I'd love to do that. And the group over here who had their swords out, they put their swords into the sheath, and they were like, oh, we're going to the Bible. Good. Yeah. And this dear soul over here, she was just so happy that we were all happy, you know. <laughs> she was just happy. Yeah, just happy, you know. Friends, that's speaking the truth in love. You don't discount truth. And you don't discount love, you marry them together. And if you're a mature believer, you know how to do that. You don't hammer people, 
you hug them. You care about them. But you also don't hide the truth of God's word because after all, the church is the pillar and foundation of God's truth in this world. And if we don't speak the truth, who will? So you do it in love. Okay. What is God looking for in a church? Oh, well, that's nice of you. Thank you. I didn't. Okay. That was rhetorical, but good. What is God looking for in the church? Yes. Secondly? Yes. Thirdly? Yes. My goodness, this is great. I, you're the best ones of the crowd. I, we'll see what 11 does. Does he find it here at Grace Community Church? A church is the sum of its parts, and its parts are its people. And that raises three questions that every one of us individually have to grapple with today. Because here's the deal, unity, ministry, maturity will only happen if it happens in your life and my life. Here are the three questions. This is our third week in a row in which I'm meddling, okay? So here we go. Are you making every effort to keep the unity of Grace Community Church by being humble, gentle, and patiently bearing with others? Are you making every effort to keep the unity of Grace Community Church by not having to have your way, but understanding that you want what is best for others? First question. Secondly, are you using your gifts for ministry in the church or in the world? Or have you tucked them away somewhere my grandpa Sigmund, every year gave my grandma Sigmund a brand new $100 bill for Christmas. He put it in one of the First National Bank of Strasbourg envelopes because they were free. And he would give that to her as a gift. When she died, we went to the safe deposit box. There were seven years of fresh new $100 bills in those envelopes in the safe deposit box. She took her gifts and put them in the safe deposit box every year for seven years and never used them. I used them in a hurry, but she never used it. <laughs> never. You know, some Christians are like that. God has given you gifts, and they are tucked away in a safe deposit box, and he wants you to use them now. Here's the third question. Are you a mature, growing Christian? Only you can answer that. Are you a mature, growing Christian? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, there is, oh my, I don't even know where to begin, so I, I think I'll just return thanks to you for this passage of scripture, Lord, because you know your church and you know exactly what we need. You want your church to be a church united. You want your church to be a church ministering. You want your church to be a church that is mature individually and corporately. Lord, we just acknowledge to you today we can't do any of those things without the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us and through us. And so today, here and online, there are people 
who are wrestling with their attitudes. And they're realizing that maybe there's too much of them and not enough of you and others. And they want to be a people who are humble and gentle, bearing with others in love. Lord, hear their prayers. Change their attitudes so that they would contribute to the unity of either this church or the church that they're part of. There are others here marvelously gifted by you. But frankly, those gifts haven't seen light a day for a while. And they're realizing that you want them to use the gifts that you've given them. That's why you gave them. And you want them to experience the joy and the blessing of ministry. Just as we as a church need to experience that blessing. And then there are still others, and I would venture to say all of us, who would say to you, Jesus, we want to be mature, growing Christians. Would you search our hearts, whatever is in us that might be keeping us from maturity, from growth, would you remove it? There might be unforgiven sin, there might be unforgiven people, there might be just a reluctance to jump in and say, I'm all in for Jesus. Lord, would you do whatever is necessary so that every person here who is a believer, every person online who is a believer, as we studied the word this morning in Ephesians 4, would desire and commit to be a mature, growing Christian. Lord, we want you to inspect the foundation of Grace Community Church. We want you to show us where we lack in unity, ministry, and maturity so that we, as a church body, can grow strong, can indeed, as you say in your word, be joined and held together by every supporting ligament, growing and building ourselves up in love as each part does its work. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said,